Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Today's reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away and have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has destroyed the barrier, he, sorry, for he himself, our peace, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside his flesh with its laws and commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity of the two, thus making peace, and in the body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he puts to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you, and were far away in peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as our chief cornerstone. In him, who, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit. By the Spirit. Humanity loves to divide. And it has for quite some time. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, after... Cain and has murdered his brother Abel. He's been punished by God for that, and he goes away and he builds a city. Now, a city brings certain images to mind for us in our world, but in the ancient world, a city is just any encampment that has walls around it. And God has already assured Cain that no one is going to take his life in vengeance for the fact that he has murdered his brother, and yet apparently, Cain doesn't think that promise from God is good enough, and so he goes out and he builds a city. He puts up walls between himself and everyone around him for the sake of his own protection. And humanity's been dividing ever since. And there's a sense where when we separate from others, we find some identity in that. We cheer for sports teams because identifying with that team and identifying with others that root for that same team gives us some sort of sense of belonging, which is really absurd if we think about it. And I say that as someone who has spent a lot of life rooting for sports teams. But I think Jerry Seinfeld was right when he said that at the end of the day, we are rooting for clothes. We stand, we cheer and yell for people wearing the clothes of the team that we love and we want them to beat the team wearing the different clothes from the other team. But if a player on our team goes to play for a different team, we go from loving them to hating them. Nothing's changed except for the shirt that they're wearing. And we cheer for laundry. And that division, as trivial as it is, gives us some identity. We take pride in where we are from, and that's not a bad thing. 
but we can also look down on others who are not from where we are from. You know, people from Minnesota, just to pick a hypothetical example, people from Minnesota might look down on people from Wisconsin. I'm just suggesting. I'm not saying that's actually true. And I would, I would criticize that, but as someone born and raised in Missouri, I can say that we look down on people from Arkansas, so I have no moral high ground to stand on, and I guess you could make the case that at least there's a river dividing Minnesota and Wisconsin. There's an imaginary line dividing Missouri and Arkansas, and we think that means that we're superior in some way. There's no division small, too petty, that someone somewhere is not willing to divide over it. When I, I was in Bible college, we were a little Bible college in southwest Missouri, and when we would meet other schools in sports or things like that, we were pretty convinced that we were the superior Bible college, which is absurd to think about again, because, you know, this group of a few hundred people in this part of the country is just automatically better than this group of people in another part of the country, but we were pretty sure, you know, we were superior, but within that college, there's three boys' dorms, and the boys' dorm that I lived in, we were pretty sure we were the superior boys' dorm out of all three dorms. I'm not going to recount the whole argument for you, but it was pretty airtight. And within that, within that boys' dorm, there's three floors, and the floor that I lived on, we were pretty sure was the best of the three floors. And within that floor, it was divided north and south between the water fountain halfway down the hallway, and we were pretty sure the north end of the hall was better than the south end of the hall. Humanity loves to divide. However we can find significance, meaning from it, if we can find someone else that we can look at and tell that they are inferior to us, it gives us some sense of meaning because we're better because we are different. Humanity loves to divide. Yet God loves to unite. Humanity separates and God brings together Humanity puts up walls. God breaks them down. Humanity finds meaning through our differences. God says meaning comes through unity under him. In Genesis chapter 12, God introduces this plan that carries through the rest of the Bible to bless and unite all nations of the world underneath his authority through his purposes. Humanity loves to divide. God loves to unite. And that, that idea builds as we keep reading in Scripture. God gives the prophet Isaiah a vision of what it's going to look like when all nations come together underneath God's authority, join together in worship of him. And yet by the time we get to Jesus, it would seem that vision had been lost. Jesus arrives on the scene, and for the Jewish people at that time, the world is very clearly divided up. It's divided up between Jew and Gentile. You have the Jews, you have, you have the Jewish people, the God's chosen people that he selected to be holy and set apart for his purposes, and they are God's special people. They're set apart, they're different, they're better because God loves them. And then you have the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are just everyone that is not us. Everyone who is not Jewish. Everyone that doesn't belong to the club, everyone that wasn't born into the right family, all the unwashed masses, the, un the contaminated, whatever it might be, they're all out there. We are clustered in here, set apart, different, special, because of the family we were born into. And to be fair, that was a two-way street. The Gentiles looked down on the Jewish people. They thought they were pretty arrogant for looking down on everyone else and saying, we're better than you because God chose us and he didn't choose you. They thought the Jewish people were a little lazy because they celebrated this thing called the Sabbath, which means they took a day off of work every week, and how could you just do that and be okay with it? They must have something wrong with them. There was plenty of hostility and division between the two. And as it's always been, humanity loves to divide. 
which is why what makes, which is what makes what Paul says in these verses that Jeff has read for us so surprising. It's surprising to any group of people at any point in history. Humanity loves to divide. We like to say that our group is better than that group, and we have to keep that separation to, to keep that in place. We don't want to become contaminated, yet Jesus breaks through all of our divisions with his death and resurrection. God has called us out of death and into life with him, but that life is not for, just for each of us to enjoy as individuals. It's something God intends to work out together. Join together as brothers and sisters in Christ, united under his banner, even if that's the only thing we have in common, that is enough. And Paul shows us that in this passage with a variety of images and ideas, but they are all calling us to work out the implications of what God has done for us together. We've been brought together by Christ. Because we cannot separate what Paul says in this passage from what he said in the passage we looked at last week. You might have noticed as Jeff was reading the text for us that it begins with the word therefore. And that connects this passage with the previous one. The last passage concluded by saying we've been saved by grace through faith. And it is a passage that can sound sort of individualistic if we read it in our English translations. It can sound like Paul is saying, I am saved by grace through faith. It's all that matters is me believing in Jesus, and I have this vertical relationship with God. Nothing else matters. I don't need to worry about anyone else. It's just all about me and trusting Jesus. And that's not what Paul's saying. Even within that passage, the, the yous that show up in our English translations, they're in the plural in the original language, which means if nothing else, as Paul is saying, you have been saved by grace through faith. He's saying that to the entire group. You all have been saved in this way, which means you have been brought together. And that is fleshed out in this passage. Because of this grace God has made available to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been brought together as one people. And that's possible, like we saw last week, by grace and nothing else. That's what breaks down the walls humanity puts up. Uh, before the coming of Jesus, there was separation between God and man and among humanity. There was separation between those who were a part of God's people and those who were not. And that separation was exaggerated beyond what it needed to be, like we've already said, but it was still there. There was a division of circumcision, this marker for the Jewish people that, that set them apart from every other group as God's chosen people. And for those that were not part of that group, the Gentiles, they were foreigners, they were wandering a long way away, unaware of what they were missing out on and the promises God had made that was for them, were lost and without hope. But Jesus has brought them near. What Isaiah envisioned has been made a reality through the blood of Jesus. Everyone can have the things that before were kept for just a select few. All people can belong because Jesus died and rose from the dead. Those that were told before they had to sit somewhere else have now been told by Jesus they have a home. This isn't because they've gone through the proper channels, they've got all their paperwork in order. It isn't because they've passed a citizenship test. It's because Jesus has welcomed them in through his death and resurrection. This is what Jesus has done for us. He's granted us citizenship. He's welcomed us home. When I first moved to Minnesota, this was not my home. I wasn't from here. I had never heard the term hot dish. I, most people call it a casserole. I don't know what to tell you people. But 
over time, I have become more accustomed to this part of the world because you all have been willing to put up with me more than anything. But transformation, becoming more at home in a place, is what Paul is saying happens when we come to Jesus. He moves us from one place to another, from one nation to another. He changes our nationality. He changes our customs and priorities. He changes our family. He transforms us from outsiders to insiders, from servants to royalty, from exiles to children. That's what Jesus has done, and Paul reminds the Ephesians of that. But he doesn't do it just for the sake of making them feel bad of what their life was like before they met Jesus, but to help them get a sense for how far Jesus has brought them. Sometimes when you're on a long journey, you need some perspective. A few weeks ago, Isaac and I were up at Pine Haven for a few days, and I was driving home, and I stopped in St. Cloud on the way home to get gas. And for those of you that have made the drive between here and Pine Haven, many of you have made it far more than I have, you know that St. Cloud is maybe halfway if you're lucky. And so I stop in St. Cloud, I text Whitney to let her know that I was going to get gas and where I was and things like that, and she responds, oh, you're almost home. And I thought, no, (laughs) I feel like I haven't gone anywhere. (laughs) And really all I'm saying in that moment is I haven't made it through the Twin Cities yet, so I don't think I'm anywhere remotely, I'm not sure if I'm in the same state as where where we live. But in the grand scheme of things, she wasn't wrong. I had made quite a bit of progress, and that didn't mean the journey was over. It just meant the journey was progressing. I think Paul's doing something similar when he reminds the Ephesians of the life they had before they met Jesus. Because they've been called out of walking in the way of death like we talked about last week. They've been called to walking in good works in Christ. And as they walk, Paul reminds them of how far they have traveled. He's encouraging them to keep walking because the grace of God is continuing to draw them near to God himself. And as he continues with that thought in verses 14 to 18, he makes it clear that this is a journey not just of drawing near to God, but drawing near to one another. Because Jesus has broken down these dividing walls. He has taken all the things humanity uses to divide, and he's defeated them in his death so that we can be one. And this is no small thing. It's not in our world, and it was not in the days of Paul. Archaeologists heard an inscription that was in the temple in Jerusalem. From what we can tell, it was probably up as Paul was writing this letter to Ephesians, and it was in the temple, dividing the portion of the temple between where Gentiles were allowed to go and where Jewish people were allowed to go. So you had this outer court of the temple that anyone was welcome to come within, and then you had a dividing wall, and within that only the really good people, the Jewish people, could go within. And that inscription, we've got the words up on the screen, said, no foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and enclosure around the temple area. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death which will follow. Welcome to church. If you go in the wrong place, we're going to put you to death, you know? But this is the world that Paul was a part of. This was what worship looked like for Jesus. There's a clear dividing line in the temple. There was this place where the temple was the place where heaven and earth were supposed to intersect, where God's presence was supposed to dwell, where God's people could come to him and worship him and know him and offer him sacrifices and live in relationship with him. And instead, there's a sign like this up keeping some people away saying only the right kind of people are welcome. Paul himself knew what this was like. In Acts chapter 21, Paul's arrested while he's in Jerusalem. The reason why, one of the reasons why he's arrested is because there's a rumor going around that he's taken Gentile people past this marker. Just a rumor. 
and it almost starts a riot and gets him arrested. That's why he's in prison as he writes Ephesians. And Paul says that in this world of division, he says the death of Jesus has broken these walls down. He's taken our sins on himself and he has destroyed all our barriers. And that means we can have peace with God first and foremost, but also with one another. This is not like peace we will find anywhere else. It's not like peace that we hope for when we think, okay, I've got a quiet day today. There's nothing on the calendar. I'm going to sit at home and drink coffee and get some work done or something like that. That's not the peace Paul's talking about. He's not talking about the kind of peace that the Roman Empire bragged that they brought to the world in Paul's day. The Roman Empire bragged that they had brought the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, across the known world. And it was a great thing. And really all it meant was that Rome was in charge and no one else had enough military might to stand up against them. Paul's not talking about ruling one person in charge with an iron fist and everyone else scared of them. He's talking about the peace of God. God getting what God wants everywhere, always. All of creation functioning as God intended it to function because the death and resurrection of Jesus has done away with our sin and our brokenness and our division, giving us something better to unite around, something that can bring true peace. And that is what Jesus has come to bring us. It's what he's come to bring you. He's not come to bring us quiet. He's not come to conquer us and rule with us cowering in fear before him. He's come to make things new. He's come to make things right. He's come to bring peace. And that's what we have in the grace of God. Peace that passes all understanding, peace that fills us with hope and uncertainty because we know that the death and resurrection of Jesus means all hardship and division has been defeated and will one day be dealt with completely through our God who is the Prince of Peace. And as we experience that, we are made into a new humanity. Those who were far away not, have not been assimilated into those who are already near. It's not like God opened up the door so that you could come and be a part of this group that already exists. He's making something completely new. Whether you were far or near away before encountering Jesus, you have all been united together into a new humanity that is better than what we could have experienced before. It's not two separate groups just figuring out how to coexist alongside one another. That two groups that are separate but not hostile with one another, who are just existing in the same space and ignoring one another, that's not two groups that are at peace. Uh, the best example I have for that is that's a junior high dance. Have you ever seen a junior high dance where all the boys are on one side of the room and all the girls are on the other side of the room and no one's mad at each other but there's a very clear separation happening? That's not what Paul's describing when he describes a church. He's describing unity. And that's what Jesus has come to bring. Our world thinks of peace as just the absence of conflict, people putting aside their differences and overlooking the things that would divide for the sake of a greater good. And Jesus' peace goes far beyond that. He's come to bring all people together. Even those who have nothing in common beyond the fact that they belong to Jesus are able to unite as God's people because of what Jesus has done. The blood of Jesus is what brings us together so that we can step into life as his people. Because we step into that life by grace, we can be confident that God will continue to build us up. Being built up together is not something we do through our own might and abilities. It is something that God does in and through us as we walk in good works with him. Because we're not called as individuals, but as a people. And these last few verses, Paul works with that idea to describe how we 
being built up into this building that God is joining together. It's built on the foundation of Christ and those that have gone before us, and it's where God's presence dwells. You no longer have to go to Jerusalem to go to the temple to be able to come near to God's, God's presence and you can only do that in certain times of the year and after you've gone through certain rites of purification and only if you're the right type of person. That's no longer the case. God's presence now dwells in and among his people through the Holy Spirit that fills us and binds us together and that is where God's presence lies. That is where we encounter the living God. We don't do it out in nature or in our feelings. We do it, we encounter the living God as we live alongside one another. Seeking his presence together. And from beginning to end, this is something God does through us. If you notice in verses 21 and 22, those, those verbs of joined together and built together, they're passive verbs. And I highlight that just because that means that we're not the ones doing the work. God is the one working through us. It's not trying really hard to build ourselves up into great individuals or a great church so that God will be pleased with us. No, God is already pleased with us. And for that reason, he's joined us together. God has already shown us his love and grace. And so he builds us up into what he desires for us to be. God's power works in and through his people so that we might bring glory to our God. And that is what God desires to do among imperfect people like you and me. He was not calling the Ephesians to add Jesus along with all the other gods that the city of Ephesus around them had on offer to worship. He's not calling us to add Jesus in amongst all the other good things we have going on in our lives. He's calling us to be transformed by his grace as individuals and as a community. He's calling us to come near, no matter how far away or close we might be already. He's not calling us to do that because we have to do it by our own abilities. Or he's not calling us to get ourselves 90% of the way there and then he'll make up the difference. He's saying that all people, no matter how good or bad they might be or think they are, need his grace to have life. But that grace is available because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, so that we might be called children of God. But as we become God's child, we are given brothers and sisters. God cares for us as a perfect, loving father. He calls us to care for one another as well so that we might all join together to be the people that God desires for us to be together. And when we do that, as Jesus brings us together, we bring glory to God through the presence of his spirit among us. God calls us one household, one building, one family so that we might all grow into what God has created us to be and the world might see what it looks like for a group of people to live together under the peace of Christ that he has brought, a peace that breaks down the division of our world. Humanity loves to divide, but God loves to unite. And Jesus is the way we are united. The poet Robert Frost has a poem called Mending Wall and it's all about repairing the stone fence between his farm and the farm of his neighbor. And they go through this process every year of walking the fence line, picking up the rocks that have fallen down over the course of the winter so that they have a fence between them. And he writes that there comes a point in the, in the fence line where there's no need for a wall. You know, on, on one side, on his side is an apple orchard, and on the neighbor's side is just a bunch of pine trees. And he says to his neighbor, you know, there's no need for, why do we, it's not like my apple trees are going to go seal your pine cones. Why do we have a fence here? And he says that his neighbor responds, good fences make good neighbors. 
Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why? Why do they make good neighbors? Why do good fences make good neighbors? Why do we need our walls? Robert Frost's neighbor might have been right that good fences make good neighbors, but if I can play with that thought a little bit, good fences make for a terrible church. Our world puts up walls for protection to shield ourselves, to define who is in and who is out so that we can have meaning and purpose, security, or something else because we know who's in our group. And that's not how the church is called to live. From the beginning to the end of this passage, there's a progression from isolation to unity. Paul goes from saying that the Ephesians were cut off, they were without hope, they were lost, they were wandering, and now they've been brought near together by the blood of Christ. They've gone from two separate groups of in and out, the right and the wrong kind of people, to one united group under the lordship of Jesus. They've gone from two groups with a barrier between them to one united body built together by the grace of God. That's the life we're called to as a church. If we have Christ in common, nothing else should divide us. We live in a world that expects people to agree with us on every last detail, and if you don't, you're unloving, you're intolerant, you're dangerous, and therefore I need to keep you at arm's length at best. If not, I need to hate you completely. And that's a line of thinking that can creep into the church. And it seems to have done so in in every segment of our society in the last five to ten years or so, just based on my own experience. And we should grieve that fact, because that is not how God has called us to live. And I'm not saying that unity is the only thing that matters. I'm not saying that we just need to agree on all costs and it doesn't matter what we believe as long as everyone gets along. I'm not saying that at all. We don't seek unity for the sake of unity. We seek unity around the blood of Jesus because that's the only thing that can ever truly unite us. The message of Jesus, when we experience it, humbles us to the point where we can be united with one another, we can put aside our differences, not because we ignore them, but because we can embrace one another in spite of them. Uniting around the grace of God, which is bigger and better than anything else that might divide us. We're called to walk in good works as God's people, and that walking happens together. That's the life God's created us for. Not individual spiritual heroes making it on our own, but people that lean on one another as we encourage one another to grow into all that God has created us to be. So don't settle for life on your own. Don't settle for wandering in the wilderness trying to find your own way. Come near to the God that has drawn near to you in Jesus so that you can have life. And as you do that, don't try to just figure it out between yourself and God. Become who God has fully created you to be alongside others who are doing the same. As Jesus brings us together and builds us up into all God's created us to be. I'll wrap up with just two thoughts. There's more that we could say about this passage, but... I just want to try to give two takeaways that might help us put into practice what Paul's saying in these verses. And the first thing is to live in community. We're called to life together with other followers of Jesus. We're called to live alongside others who are following Jesus, people who know us and can encourage us when we need it and can speak truth to us when we need it so that we can see the love of God acted out towards us by other people who love Jesus. So find community. Find people in your life who know you and love you anyway. Find people you can be vulnerable with so that you can know the love of God more deeply than you could ever know it on your own. And maybe you have that already. Maybe you need to join a small group. If you didn't sign up for one but still want to be a part of one, come find me. 
before you leave today and we'll figure something out. Seek out people around you if it's, if it's not in an official thing like that. Don't just plug in for the sake of plugging in, but step into the life God desires for you alongside other people who are figuring it out, what it means, figuring out what it means to follow Jesus with you so that you can be joined together and built into the fullness of Christ. And secondly, seek reconciliation. If I can be really practical, there might even be someone you want or need to seek reconciliation with who's in this room right now. And if that's true, don't walk out of here today without making an effort. And I don't say that because I have anyone in mind. If you're hearing me say that right now and you have your arms crossed, you think, who told them about what I've got going on behind the scenes or whatever it might be? I wrote this on Tuesday. I didn't even know you were going to be at church today when I wrote it. I'm not picking on anyone. If you're crossing your arms right now and thinking, well, he just doesn't understand. I shouldn't have to apologize. They're the one that made the mistake. You might be right. But if Jesus kept distance from us, we would be in a lot of trouble. And I'm not trying to single anyone out. I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. But I know the gospel calls us to life together. And so if reconciliation needs to happen, we should be the people that are best at it. And if we're being honest, we can make excuses and say, well, he's singling me out, he's picking on me, I don't want to do it, whatever it might be. Or it could be the Holy Spirit speaking. And that's fine if you ignore me, but please don't ignore the voice of God. Seek reconciliation. If you need help doing that, I know it's a difficult thing to do. So if you need help with it, reach out to me, reach out to someone else so we can walk with you through it because... Life is hard, and reconciliation is difficult and messy, and it requires hard conversations. It requires wisdom to navigate well. I'm not ignoring any of that. I'm not asking you to do anything foolish, but I'm asking you to live out the teachings of Jesus by loving God and loving others. God's glorified when his people are united. So if you need to go find someone before you leave today, if you need to send a text right now, if you need to go home and make a phone call, please do it, not for my own sake, but for yours so that we can seek reconciliation and grow into all that Jesus calls us to be as his people together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your peace that you have brought to us through the death of Jesus, that he came to a world that was divided and angry and hostile towards him, and yet he took all of our hostilities, all of our anger, all of our division on himself, to die the death we deserved so that we might have life with you instead. God, we thank you for the hope we have because he has done that for us. And because he has done all that for us, God, help us to respond well. Help us to walk in good works, as Paul said in the passage we looked at last week. Help us walk in good works together, as he says in the passage we've looked at today so that you might be glorified through us in all that we do. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.